God of Second Chances. First Blood, Part 4, Episode 32. Then God looked over all he had made, and he saw that it was excellent in every way. And the Lord God formed a man's body from the dust of the ground and breathed into it the breath of life, and the man became a living person. Then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had created. And the Lord God planted all sorts of trees in the garden, beautiful trees that produced delicious fruit. At the center of the garden, he placed the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and care for it. But the Lord God gave him this warning. You may freely eat any fruit in the garden except fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat of its fruit, you will surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a companion who will help him. So the Lord God caused Adam to fall into a deep sleep. He took one of Adam's ribs and closed up the place from which he had taken it. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib and brought her to Adam. At last, Adam exclaimed, She is part of my own flesh and bone. She will be called woman because she was taken out of a man. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Now, although Adam and his wife were both naked, neither of them felt any shame. Now, the serpent was the shrewdest of all the creatures the Lord God had made. Really? He asked the woman. Did God really say you must not eat any of the fruit in the garden? Of course we may eat it, the woman told him. It's only the fruit from the tree at the center of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God says we must not eat it or even touch it or we will die. You won't die, the serpent hissed. God knows that your eyes will be opened when you eat it. You will become just like God, knowing everything, both good and evil. The woman was convinced. The fruit looked so fresh and delicious, and it would make her so wise. So, she ate some of the fruit. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her. Then he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they strung fig leaves together around their hips to cover themselves. Toward evening, they heard the Lord God walking about in the garden, so they hid themselves among the trees. The Lord God called out to Adam, Where are you? He replied, I heard you, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you that you were naked? The Lord God asked. Have you eaten the fruit I commanded you not to eat? Yes, but... 
Then Adam named his wife Eve because she would be the mother of all people everywhere. And the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. Greetings, beloved, and welcome to CFD episode 32, God of Second Chances, First Blood, Part 4. I truly hope and pray that you are well wherever you are joining us from. As you carry on your daily chores, as you drive, or whatever you're doing as you listen to this, I want you to know one thing very well. You are valued, you are precious, and above all, if you forget everything you're hearing, please always remember that you are loved with an everlasting love. No matter your circumstances or whatever good or bad choices that you have ever committed, the truest statement is that you are loved. The one who created you just the way you are rejoices in his creation and says that it is very good. This may seem like a contradiction when we look at the state of the world all throughout our collective existence to this very moment and in some ways I would have to agree with you. God declared everything to be very good, but then we see very bad things happening in our world. How could this be? What is fundamentally um, objective, good or evil? In other words, which concept stands alone, right or wrong? I once heard a preacher offer a groundbreaking understanding of the state of being good or bad. He explained it this way. Take an apple, for example. In its state of being, naturally speaking, when it grows out of an apple tree, it is good. It starts starts off as a little flower and continues to grow until it is ready for the picking. Actually, most fruits fall to the ground when they reach their perfection in growth, at which time the apple is delicious in every sense. Suppose you were to leave that apple on the ground for a week, a month or longer. What would then become of this delicious, good-looking and appetizing apple? Well, it would start to spoil and sooner than later, the apple would no longer be considered good. But in actuality, it would be a bad apple. The same apple that grew in time to its perfect tasting state would now rot and smell and indeed be detrimental to your health or you to consume it in that state. So again I ask, what is fundamentally objective, good or bad? Science would inform us that entropy, which is a thermodynamic quantity representing the unavailability of a system's thermal energy for conversion into mechanical work, often interpreted as the degree of disorder or randomness in the system, or in other words, a lack of order or predictability or a a gradual decline into disorder, would suffice in explaining why the apple, given the passing of time, would eventually result in its lower states of existence, that is, until the energy from the apple is converted to different states of being. I believe that the world, our world, is in a closed system, meaning that there are laws that govern precisely how our world is to operate. Again, using the the example of an apple, 
we may conclude that the good apple may spoil after falling to the ground. Worms would then take over and consume the apple's contents and given the right environment along with the conditions necessary for an apple tree to grow, the seeds from the apple which fell may again germinate and become trees themselves, producing many, many times more delicious apple, ready for the picking and the cycle continues. Thus, even from an apple that due to no fault of its own grows to perfection and and because it is not consumed in time goes bad, but then could potentially grow into many other apple trees and produce much delightful harvest, so do we deduce that good things can and do come out of awful situations. With the death of an apple in the natural processes, orchards of apples could ensue. It is amazing to conclude that though something good may become corrupt into being bad, that the objective focus should be emphasized on the concrete concept of good rather than emphasizing the gone bad nature of something good. Bad is relative to good, not the other way around. There can exist a state of good without bad were you to remove the capability of something good becoming bad. In our apple analogy, if an apple tree is allowed to grow in the natural sense to maturity and then allowed to produce many delicious fruit to maturity and that fruit is then allowed to remain in the state of perfection without ever spoiling and when one apple is picked another one grows in its place reaching its perfection and then like the rest of the apples is made to stop in that state, in a simplistic way we could see how the Garden of Eden may have existed. The same power that created the law that allows entropy to exist can indeed create or produce a different kind of law. And again, this may have been the case in the Garden of Eden. We have the great honor and blessing of having the collection of books that is the Bible, and we're slowly and carefully digesting what we are reading, believing it to be indeed the Word of God. Albeit written by man, we believe these individuals were under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit and were not only recording whatever was on their minds, but rather the truth given to them supernaturally. Mind you, not through dictation. If you'd like to, I encourage you to simply do some research regarding how the Bible was written, the authors, when and where they existed and wrote from, what circumstances were they under, and so on, and you will also find that journey to be quite revealing. The narrative of how the world was formed, along with what went wrong, remains a great topic of wonder and thought-provoking, and it is truly shameful that some in the academia circles reject outright and even insult the content contained in the Bible, and it is really to their own detriment. If corruption and temptation could be found within a perfectly created world, how much more outside that epicenter that is the Garden of Eden? I submit to you that unless you make up your mind regarding where to put your faith, whether in God's word containing, uh, contained in the Bible or in your own understanding according to whatever other narratives that come your way, your mind will always be tossed about and unrest would ensue and occupy most of your existence.
With the belief in the God of the Bible comes stability almost like driving the Autobahn in Germany where there is no speed limit and you can rest in the knowledge that God is in complete control. Okay, maybe that's not the best comparison, but in all sincerity, believing in a relational God of the Bible that identifies with your human experiences while emphasizing with you when life's empathizing, sorry, with you when life storms comes, gives you a solid anchor on which you can depend on. In my own experiences, I have come to accept that there is never, there has never been a single moment in my life that God did not allow to exist, and that his watchful eye was always on me, whether day or night, when I'm awake or sleeping, when making good or bad choices, he is always there and I rest in that truth. The thought that God is always there invokes different reactions in me as I know it does in you too. When I'm doing something I know to be wrong, I know that God is there and that it pains him to see me make the wrong choices. On the other hand, I also know that he is there also when I make, or rather choose to make, right choices. I believe I am tougher at myself when I knowingly do something that I know to be wrong while not allowing pride to enter my heart when I know that I am doing the right thing. I know that my thoughts may be invaded and so when I commit a wrong, some voice in my head may tell me that I'm a screw-up and that I'm not worthy of the unconditional love given by God. I am learning to be keen to hear God's Holy Spirit's approval of my doing right while tuning out and resisting the voices that tells me, and I'm sure all of us, that we are not good enough. Everything changed, I mean the natural course of nature itself changed, when Adam and Eve decided to listen to the serpent, the devil, and test out God's word. I've always said to my wife that there are two types of questionings. One type of questioning seeks to find a rational answer to a question, and indeed, a rational answer could be given. In the other type of questioning, however, the intention is not to get an answer, but rather to challenge or to confront. This kind of questioning does not seek an answer, but simply undermines the statements made. It is the second kind of questioning that Satan brought forth to Adam and Eve, causing them to allow themselves to be deceived and then going on to disobey a direct command. The more I study and analyze the story of Adam and Eve, the more I realize that this story may as well be titled Sam and Michelle or You and Your Spouse. God had given Adam, Eve, and indeed all of the heavenly hosts the great gift of oblivion. Without the knowledge of good and evil, as we saw in the examples of the apple, you could simply have good exist without any evil. Again, evil is simply the corrupt state of good. Good can exist without evil, but evil cannot exist without good, since evil needs good in order to exist. After Satan found corruption in his heart, a 
and we truly need to reserve our analysis of Satan until further reading as for now we're only seeing him as the shrewd serpent in the perfectly created world, God in his wisdom knew that the potential of evil existed purely because of the existence of good and therefore a dire warning to the rational minds of the ones who were the object of his love came in the warning given to Adam. Whatever you do, do not eat of the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For if you do, you will surely die. The wrongdoings we knowingly commit give testament to the fact that God was right in telling Adam and Eve not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because then they, just like us, become accountable for our choosings. The ability to choose right and wrong is a double-edged sword. On one hand, it is indeed powerful being able to have the freedom to choose for ourselves what choices to make, but awful to know that we must face the consequences of our evil and good choices. Simple question to you, my dear beloved. Pause for a moment and ponder. What has shaped your existence? Where have good decisions led you? What about bad ones? Can you note the contrast in your own life? There was a time when all of us didn't know any difference. We just existed and acted. We followed the drives within us, cried for what we wanted, and cried if we didn't get it touched, played, and experienced the world around us without any meaningful outward thought. That is, until our parents or caregivers started child-proofing our environments and instructed us, yes, you can do that, and no, you should not do that. As we grew up, most of us needed scaffolding in order to ensure that we survived till the ages we currently are. Without this scaffolding, most of us would have never made it this far, and that's a fact. Were there no strong boundaries or of teaching us right and wrong, most of us would have ended up living or leading very different lives from the ones we have now. It takes real tender love and care, some TLC, along with a lot of patience, faith, and hope to raise healthy children into maturity and as decent and responsible members of society. This is a simplistic process that explains the complex dynamics that transpire in nurturing children to maturity. Again, I emphasize, the story of Adam and Eve is a story of you and I. Though we may try, we cannot separate ourselves from this parallel. One, once life leaves any living being physically, that being ceases to have life, and in the physical sense, in the natural courses of progression starts the decaying processes. Adam and Eve were warned that the day that they ate of the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that they would surely die. This death did not occur physically. As we read, they felt shame, covered themselves with some fig leaves, and then hid among the trees. 
It is easy to know that when we do wrong, and even realize that we've committed some wrong, we all collectively attempt to use natural reasons to cover up our wrongs, just as Adam and Eve used what they could locally find in fig leaves. Why fig leaves? Why not banana or other massive naturally found leaves? Maybe we will find out later. For now, the focus is on these two representatives of the human race, along with their reactions to wrongdoing and God's response. It is impossible to overstate the amount of disappointment that must have flooded God's heart as what had just happened. At what had just happened, sorry, even though he knew that it would happen. Just because God knows everything from beginning to end does not mean that his heart did not break regarding what was about to happen. And indeed, he had already considered what he would do and his redemptive plan was already in play. Again, nothing catches God of guard. And just because we read statements such as God called out to Adam, Where are you? is not to mean that God did not know or doesn't know where we are at all times. As we will continue to find out, God already knew where Adam and Eve were, and indeed knew before the beginning of time. Before a single day existed in their lives, as well as yours, God knows. It is rather for their purposes and for ours that God calls out, You, me, we, where are you? The way you answer this calling depends on your relationship with your Heavenly Father along with the opportunity for you to fess up and come clean. Father God then goes on to let the natural course of sin play out as this is the way of love. Every choice has a consequence, every action a reaction. Had they chosen differently, the whole world as we know it would have turned out to be very different than we currently see it. If you are a doubter of this truth, just take a detour and read some prominent and truthful biographies of great men and women over our history and you will see the evidence of where our choices may lead us, either in advancement of the welfare of all humans or the unimaginable evil desires of some in bringing forth pain and suffering towards fellow human beings. It is choices that really emphasize the kind of people we are. Furthermore, it is noteworthy that the consequences for our choices and actions also seem to match. Some choices have major consequences, while others have very low outcomes and consequences, and it seems to all be relative. Even in our court systems, we pursue a legal course of action that aims to match the severity of breaking the law with ensuing consequences. For example, in Canada, the court systems consider different consequences for young offenders under the adult age of 18 versus those of, of over 18. Furthermore, if a theft is totaled to be under $5,000, the consequences are different for those over $5,000 and so on and so forth. However, it is also clear to note that we don't actually get the full measure of consequences for our actions. This seems to be a measure of grace or mercy for all of us when we commit some wrongs. 
I don't believe that any of us ever fully receives what we deserve, injustice per se, for the wrongs we do. If you're to carefully note your major wrongdoings, along with the ensuing consequences of the penalty you had to pay, you will note that it could have been much worse. If you also take note of some of our most violent offenders, some would suggest that a life sentence where taxpayers are left with the hundreds of thousands of dollars in payments for their incarceration, or even a death sentence, cannot even come close to comparing to the amount of pain they cause. Furthermore, some offenders even get away with murder and so on. Just search out cold case files and you'll come to this conclusion. So how then could we say that God is a God of justice? We must remember his supernatural attributes that we can only grasp by concept. Kind of like considering infinite everything or anything. As God is spirit and there is no limit to his wisdom, might, existence, love, etc., etc., we must consider that he knows and also allows for all outcomes. This may be a very challenging truth to digest, but it is true. The fact that he knows all things and that he is all-powerful means that he allows for all life circumstances to exist. Hard as it may be to consider a good God in a really bad world, this remains true and will continue to digest what is written in order to digest and understand and let the scriptures reveal who God is along with what it means to be a Christian. As we read through the consequences given to Adam and Eve along with the serpent, we must conclude that there is a surface level understanding of this text as well as an allegorical perspective. Indeed, as we will continue to understand, the biblical text was written in layers and contains many levels of truths that will get revealed as we read along. Caution, however, or rather extreme caution, must be applied when attempting to decipher what is in these holy scriptures of old, as mis misinterpretations have led to much evil in our world. One is better off accepting the surface level of what is written and then applying those truths in their lives rather than misinterpreting the scriptures and leading many astray. Scriptures need to be able to be interpreted by scriptures and always make sense as a whole. I used to think that there were contradictory statements in the Bible until I systematically read it over and over again and studied what I thought were contradictions in light of other scriptures that shed more light and came to the conclusion that there are none. When we find or are told or of contradictions, it is always due to misinterpretations that lead to wrong understandings. What you see or are told is a biblical contradiction today will by tomorrow turn out to be a simple misunderstanding. I know of some religions that would rather poke holes or emphasize to Bible believers that the Bible contains errors and this is a topic we could indulge in at a later time. The points I am attempting to convey are that there are consequences for our choices. Those consequences are not always what we deserve but are rather lessened 
that the Bible has many truthful layers and any contradictory statements that we may find in it are simply misunderstandings that could be corrected by careful analysis of scriptures with scriptures and that God's Holy Spirit continues to lead us into all truths. Let's continue. First, blood. I heard you and therefore I hid. I was afraid. Decide for yourself today that you will not only accept the wrongdoing you committed, but that you will also own up to it without excuses and accept the consequences thereof. Don't run and hide. Don't blame others or circumstances. Simply acknowledge the wrong, make amends, accept the consequences, and work on doing better next time. And the one after that, and the one after, and so on and so forth. It is inevitable that you and I will make mistakes. That's just human nature. How you deal with those mistakes, along with how you handle others' mistakes, will distinguish you from others. And the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife, as it is written. I pondered about the titles God of Mercy, Grace and Love, and God of Second Chances quite a bit, as this could be the appropriate titles for CFD. Really and truly, the theme of God being merciful, graceful, and full of unfailing and relentless love, along with Him also being benevolent in giving second, third, and fourth, and thousands of chances after our wrongdoings, is a theme that we will continue to see all throughout the scriptures right through to the very end. This truth, however, does not mean that there will not be consequences for our wrongdoings as we established earlier all choices have consequences and every action a reaction in the reality that god is perfection in every way including in his ruling sin or disobedience or if you like the 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 breakage of his laws will always carry just penalties this is the reality we can attempt to think beyond or consider other outcomes, and that's well and good, but we must not become naive, ignorant, or rebellious in our attempts to measure our own existences by our own standards. Our measurements will always prove to be wrong. We must accept what is, and the sooner we do this, the sooner we can truly begin to understand the nature of God and what it means to be a Christian. Adam and Eve chose fig leaves to cover themselves, but God chose animal skins to help them out. He knew they would be disobedient. He knew they would cover themselves, run and hide. He knew that they would blame each other along with the creation placed under them. And he knew that fig leaves or any other type of cover-up would not suffice. Only the shedding of blood for the skins to cover them up. What a sad state of affairs for God. After creating everything and then looking back at it and saying that it was very good, 
after longing to share the best of what he had with humans and creating them in his moral image of love, he now must shed blood in order to cleanse, in a sense, the nakedness and shame that Adam and Eve find themselves in. One of his creation, a perfect, unblemished, innocent animal, now had to die in order for Adam and Eve to continue living shamelessly. Did God hate the animal that had to die in order for Adam and Eve to be cleansed of their guilt? Absolutely not. You don't create something, declare it perfect, and then again hate it. And if this is true in human sense, then how much more in a godly sense? From this point onwards, everything about creation changes. God remains true to his loving nature, as we will continue to see, but mankind has to be taught about his, just as a child needs guidance, protection, provision, and instruction if they are to grow and be healthy. Like a parent, we will observe what love in action looks like from a pragmatic or practical sense, so we may all learn about ourselves and humble ourselves enough to look for God's guidance in matters pertaining to our lives. What do you think so far about the state of events? How do you view God and his response towards Adam, Eve, and the serpent? How do you understand the serpent in revelation or in relation to Adam and Eve? How do you understand Adam and Eve? Do you now see how Adam and Eve could be exact replicas of you and I given the circumstances? I hope that you were not only challenged by what we are discussing, but also are inspired to think of your own life in these terms and think of how you would properly respond. Obviously, Adam and Eve seem to have been willing vessels to be used by the enemy lurking around us, dis disguised as a harmless creation, whispering biblical contradictions, and enticing us to follow our own instinctual selfish natures instead of relying on God's word for direction. God did not want Adam and Eve to be answerable for what they knew, but rather he wanted to protect them out of the great love he had for them. The serpent, on the other hand, seemed to have had different motives and was successful in convincing them to disobey God's word and therefore sealed their own along with our fate to this very day. Consider very carefully the words you're listening to or reading as they may prove to offer you eternal life or if not heeded, eternal separation from the one who created you, lavishes on you and longs to spend all eternity with you. The choices are yours to make and the consequences are yours to take. Choose and then act wisely. Father, I pray for every heart listening to this podcast or reading this book for their spiritual inner eyes to be opened and inner ears in order for them to receive what you bring to them freely through your Holy Spirit. May their hearts not be hardened, but rather malleable in the hands of the one who loves them eternally. In your holy name, I pray. Amen. God loves you, and I also love you. See you next time.
Before I begin my recording, I want to sincerely apologize for the last segment that I had posted, named Episode 33, First Blood. It seems like I had some technical difficulties, but here we are. Episode 33, First Blood, Take 2. Hello and welcome to CFD. Christianity for Dummies is one man's journey towards discovering who God is along with what it means to be a Christian. In our current social climate where you, or rather me, are the central focus with no one else in consideration except for me, it is a humbling stand to even consider thinking or furthermore attempting to listen to a podcast, read a book that is titled Christianity for Dummies. Many of us do not have the humility needed to consider the fact that we may in fact know very little regarding who God is or what it truly means to be a Christian and would rather continue seeking out titles that best suit what our itching ears and hearts would rather hear. If I had, for example, titled my journey, God Always Provides or No God, No Wealth, along with many other similar self-help, good-sounding, catchy phrase titles, maybe more people would consider checking out this series. It is much easier to tempt people with what they already want and therefore be able to exploit them, but that is not what I am called to do. I use this phrase, called to do, or my calling, because I believe firmly that indeed we all have a calling. Yours may be completely different from mine, and that is actually an asset, considering the whole of humanity. If one truly wants to begin to understand the greatest complexities to ever exist in our world, then they must begin from a place of humility. That is a place where we, they can honestly declare, I know nothing, or I know very little about this topic. Thus, a dummy at it. That, right there. Your admittance that you may know very little about this topic opens your entire being to the wisdom contained in the books of these holy scriptures we call the Bible and indeed are assured to greatly benefit. In our worldly wisdom, if, if our worldly wisdom, sorry, is in all actuality complete foolishness and that the proper knowledge of God is the beginning of all wisdom, then how much more should we be pursuing with relentless fervor to understand who God is along with what it means to be a Christian? I will let you answer that for yourself. And with that small commencing segment, we will begin. If someone was able to pick one phenomenon that has plagued all our world's existence since the beginning of time till today, hands down it would have to be the shedding of blood. From top of the food chain to the very bottom, our very existence continues to need death and the shedding of blood. I need not at this time give all the examples we see in our world of this reality as I've touched on it a little bit in the topic of abortion, but, if it goes, but it goes so much deeper than that. From the simplest living life forms that are actually not that simple, to the man at the top being in charge of all creation, we see that something is very wrong, because in order for some to live, others have to die. Whether plants or 
animals, someone has to die. Do all deaths matter? I believe so, as everything was created for and with a purpose. Exploitations of every kind always commences from the belief that one is of better value than the one being exploited and therefore justified as a necessary existence. My personal belief is that there exists a certain level of satanic influence in all of us to do wrong, but we remain very willing vessels as all of us have a free will. This is of course a general statement as I have never met everyone in the world. However, it is evident that many of us do make choices for ourselves and those who don't, well, God is the judge. The fact that some people may have influences beyond their control to commit some unimaginable evil does not give you and I the free pass to use our free will to carry out wrongs. We must use our free will to do good and let God be the judge of the ones that seemingly cannot be held accountable for their wrongdoing for whatever reasons. That is not to say that we excuse their behaviors because we may not understand why people would really choose to harm each other, but rather use what systems we have, even though with error, to attempt to get to the truth of the matter and therefore render the right judgments under our moral laws. The percentage of those who cannot in fact or maybe it is very difficult determining motivation and intent along with awareness of both crimes and consequences in light of our laws, I believe is very low, as the majority of the human and even animal species understand consequences. I found it interesting, for example, that when Nazi Germany was finally defeated, many of the men and women in charge chose to run away and live lives as fugitives rather than face a court of law set up in Nuremberg to persecute those in the highest echelons of the Nazi hierarchy, some even deciding to commit suicide rather than face whatever penalties were being introduced along with the evidence provided. If these men and women truly believed that what they were doing was right, then they would have all chosen to stand trial and also produced evidence of their right doings, as in making their cases. I often refer to this period of time, but truth is, there continues to be genocides all across our world, and maybe what has actually happened is that we've become ever more clever in hiding our criminal tendencies along with our society societies allowing for ever more gray or questionable morality issues, therefore making some crimes legal in the eyes of the law. Viewing all worldly issues as either being right or wrong, good or bad, evil or righteous, have become very relative and objective truths, like I've mentioned previously, is no longer a true statement. In our current society, everyone can be encouraged to do good as it suits them, maybe if it's not negatively affecting those around them. On the surface, this may seem like the best course of action, but it is fundamentally flawed. Everyone cannot be expected to do good according to what they deem to be good. Furthermore, 
a society cannot be left in charge of deciding for themselves what is good and what is evil as our history clearly shows that we will always end up elevating those who are like or identify with us while marginalizing and exploiting those who aren't even as a humanity we cannot and actually should not decide what we can objectively decide on what is right and and what is wrong according to our own analysis of life as again history will clearly show that we are incapable of living in harmony with each other and with all creation and this all goes back to the time of Adam and Eve with a perfect world presented to them along with only one warning they failed again you can spend much time contemplating why God placed that tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil right in the center and plain view of these two humans that he knew would disobey and further still why allow the serpent to roam around in the garden unchecked knowing full well that Satan would use him to seduce Eve into committing the very first sin but you must conclude that this was the most effective way of teaching human nature without taking away free will. This way was the very best way of pure and adulterated unconditional love. The full knowledge that God had of every possible outcome of every single choice and then choosing to do as he did must be viewed as the very best choice even though we may never understand why there are definitely many questions that will never be answered physically in our lifetime or in the lifespan of humanity and we must be okay with that this is not to say that we should give up on asking and answering every question and especially the biggest ones god forbid we must ask and then continue to seek out those answers with a relentless motivation. We must seek with all our hearts if we are to find anything worthwhile. I am a great advocate for advising all who can pursue conventional learning to do so with all the energy that God grants them. If you are an A student, get the highest level of education that you can get. Become masters of the subjects you take and even pursue doctorates. There is much wisdom and good that comes from studying our physical universe and we have been able to save billions of lives while making even more lives comfortable by understanding our physical universe through the sciences. However, let us commit to this learning in light of the greatest teacher of all, the one who created the universe we study, along with leaving his fingerprints in laws of mathematics and science that we can grasp and apply in order to make our lives even better, save even more lives, and maybe more importantly, get to know our creator God and why he created us all. This pursuit to know God as well as understanding Christianity is what this journey is all about. I must warn you though, pursue the sciences and neglect the Creator and you may still save lives and do much good, but slowly and surely pride may enter your heart and with enough time passing your heart may become cold towards the one who created it all. 
You may even conclude that you no longer need to know him and that you can decipher through life while only using the wisdom you find in this world. At some point, you may even kick him out of your classrooms as you believe him to be a hindrance when he places limitations on, a, on how you are to conduct your learning and life. Sooner or later, you may conclude that there is no need for a God. Seek out to explain everything materially and even casually flow through being an agnostic to just plain atheist. What would happen to a person who having finally reached the age of maturity to receive to receiving their driving license, receives it, purchases or acquires a vehicle, and in the course of their day-to-day -day commutes and trips, decide that they know enough about their car not to need any more influence from the vehicle's manufacturer's manual? What if they decided that actually stop signs or you can call them stoptionals, and red lights really just means Make sure the way is cleared. Make a dash for it. What if they viewed speed limits as only suggestions and that they should floor their gas pedals to reach the 200 kilometers an hour their speedometer says they can reach? What if they decided that they never need to change their vehicle's critical fluids such as brake, transmission, or engine oil? What if the description above is of someone owning a motorcycle? Or a jet engine? What if they decided never to service their vehicles? The vehicles may continue functioning as they should for a time. With the passing of each day, this driver would be playing Russian roulette with their vehicle, with other vehicles, with their lives and the lives of others. Every dangerous maneuver or neglect of the vehicle and safety road, law, uh, road laws would lead ever closer to disaster. Such a person may get away with this type of living, but most certainly not forever. As sure as they continue making those risky choices, chances are their days would be numbered. Ladies and gentlemen, this is exactly what many of us choose to do with, with these complex bodies that God gave to us before a single day existed in our lives, along with the beautiful world He created for us to care for while enjoying, just as He had declared it, very good. We have spoken briefly on the amount of perfectly choreographed events that have to occur in all of us in order to exist as we do. And we even have examples of what happens when things don't go as planned or expected, thus giving us no excuses. It is indeed a miracle having all billions of us existing on this one planet with every providence available to us. It is said, and I repeat, that the world has enough for everyone's needs, but not for everyone's greed. So what are the roots of greed that makes me think and as a matter of fact believe that I am better than others and therefore more deserving of more resources than others? Let's unpack that as we read the scriptures. And the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. Sam, someone may interject. Couldn't God have chosen a different source of clothing apparel? I mean, why kill an innocent animal for skins for Adam and Eve? 
Why commit the first act of killing? To be quite honest, I don't know. I have formulated a few reasons why it had to be an animal, but really and truly, I don't know for sure. As mentioned before, all that is written in the Bible has a surface level message that is relatively clear to the reader. However, there lay hidden narratives beyond surface level readings and understandings, and then more layers and so forth. You can understand the surface layer of understanding without getting deeper. However, the surface level of, of understanding becomes ever more clearer in light of the deeper understandings, and so on and so forth. Following along so far? <laughs> Let me explain it this way. It is common knowledge that an iceberg could seem relatively small on top of the water surface, but that indeed most of it, roughly 80% of it, is actually invisible from the surface. We can grasp a lot of concepts and indeed gather much wisdom from the surface level understanding of what is written in the scriptures, but we gain even more understanding the more we read it and the more is revealed to us via God's Holy Spirit. A baby starts off by drinking spoonfuls of the first productions of a mother's milk that is full of all forms of nutrients and disease-fighting capabilities. The more they drink of this milk, the colostrum, finally gives way to streams of nutritious milk. However, though remaining very good for the baby throughout their young lives, Solid food must be introduced as the milk nutrients are no longer sufficient for the baby's healthy growth. Later in the years, the baby will need to be weaned off breast milk and solid food will become the main and later only source of nutrients. The journey and processes of understanding who God is, along with what it means to be a Christian, is kind of like that. The shedding of blood may as well be a real-life under-the-layer example that from that point onwards, blood will need to be shed and maybe even, even, even for the remission of sins. Right now, we have God using the skins to cover their physical nakedness. But since everything has a purpose, I wonder what he used the blood for. What about the meat? Again, what animal, I wonder, did God deem appropriate for the sacred duty of providing skins for the covering of Adam and Eve's nakedness? What could this clothing gesture represent? What message did Adam and Eve acquire from this experience? Anyone think they were remorseful for what they had done? The scriptures does not record either Adam or Eve or the serpent ever apologizing for their wrongs. Did God demand an apology from them? Did he care that they didn't even reconcile with their wrongdoing? How would you react with someone to someone who wrongs you and then gives excuses to why they wronged you and never apologizes? I can think of various responses with the best of us responding negatively in our thoughts while others responding with insults, verbally and otherwise. God simply states the consequences, then goes on to sacrifice an animal in order to cover for their nakedness. 
Anyone else think that this is this nakedness could be much more than just a physical nakedness? Could it be symbolic of other forms of nakedness? Maybe psychological or emotional nakedness? Or maybe spiritual nakedness? What does this opening of the eyes actually mean? It is silly to think that Adam and Eve were both physically blind, but now they could see. So what blindness is being implied here? Could this blindness be connected to their deaths? I say deaths because in the warning given, God in the warning given, God said that in the day that they ate of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, that they would surely die. And yet here they were, with God providing them the consequences of their disobedience, along with some skins to cover up. What does it all mean? As we work on understanding the above questions, please bear in mind that God knew of everything well beforehand. And so, if this information is being collected for a purpose, we must conclude that it is for our purposes. If we see Adam and Eve in all of us, and they were our first parents, I believe that the rest of the Bible will touch on our very characteristic traits through the individuals that we will meet along with their personalities. If this is truly the Word of God, and God is the Creator of all, then for sure all of us, bar none, have biblical representations in one way or another. Also, keep this in mind. How did Adam and Eve fall other than... Sorry. How did Adam and Eve feel other than shame at what they had done? How did they react to God's gentle reminder of consequences along with this kind gesture? Surely, Adam and Eve appeared to be young people who didn't quite gather the magnitude of their actions and what chains of reactions they had just unraveled. When in my younger years, right up to my 20s, there are choices I made that I could have that had that that could have had life and death consequences, but I didn't properly consider them. I even had warnings, just as Adam and Eve did, but he did not to those warnings. I was in my zone. I was consumed with selfish desires of only doing what I wanted to do without the proper thoughts of the impact of my actions. I was never intending to harm anyone, just like Adam and Eve, but my actions could have had a catastrophic impact on my life and of those around me. I have an incredibly caring nature. I've always worked with children and youth with an emphasis on troubled or at-risk youth as well as youths with multiple exceptionalities, also known as children with special needs. And yet here I was, pursuing my own selfish ambitions without a careful thought on who I may negatively impact. I was almost always under the influence of alcohol, but is that really a reason? There are many people who drink and would never get behind the wheel. People that maybe who do not even care for others as much as I do, but would have never even dreamt about doing what I was doing during that season of my life. Were Adam and Eve justified in their actions since they could all blame it on something or someone else, including the serpent? 
Is this the reason why God was graceful and merciful towards them by providing them clothing with the sacrifice of one of his beloved creations because he knew how frail they truly were? Does the simple fact that we can give reason exonerate us from all wrongdoing? Again, I firmly believe that the Bible was given in order for us to understand his reaction towards us as we use the free will he gave each of us, or at least the lives he gave us. How challenging, or rather, how did God feel as he sacrificed an animal for Adam and Eve? Does God have feelings? I very recently had a deep and very meaningful conversation with one of my friends regarding grief. Having lost both of her parents, along with a best friend in quick succession, while still in her 20s, we could, have, we could have a raw dialogue that attempted to analyze the do's and don'ts of dealing with grief. She shared some incredible insights regarding this reality that we would all rather not discuss, and it was quite liberating knowing how strong her character continues to be molded through her agonizing ordeals. We both concluded on how important it is to be surrounded by those you love, have some realistic goals without time restraints, have the ones you love hold you accountable, and above all, seek out where faith fits in your experiences. Everyone who has reached the age of maturity knows about death and has been impacted by it in one way or another. Whether it is the death of a close relative, a friend, or even a pet, there is much I could share regarding death, and I have shared quite a bit previously. But for now, I wanted to highlight on our emotions during grief. My friend and I also agreed that one of the most damaging trends of grief counseling is to discourage someone from going through their mourning and grieving processes, and even more so, the stereotypes and understandings built into many societies regarding emotions. As we were both from African dysentery, we could agree that the expectation would be for men to back up and not show emotions. I, however, identified that since I was born into two cultures, my mom identified as a Kikuyu or was a Kikuyu, while my dad, Aluya, although both identifiable as being Bantus, their mourning processes were vastly different. There are a lot of similarities and some differences in the way that these two cultures conduct themselves, but when it comes to grieving for a lost one, they couldn't be further apart in the way that they dealt with it. Kikuyus would rather suppress their emotions, accept what has happened, and quietly going through the burial processing. On the other hand, Luyas believe in quite literally letting the crazy out as you moan the loss of loved ones. The, the aim, the airs are filled with wails and loud moans and utterances and deep sorrowful tears in the entire process of grieving and then the loved one is usually buried in the front yard of one's ancestral property, permanently being remembered by all those who visit. How does your culture grieve? Do you know the grieving processes of other cultures? How are they comparable to yours? 
If we can all identify grieving processes, and vastly different as they may be, we can account for all cultures having meaningful ways of paying their last respects to dearly departed, isn't it logical to conclude that God would also have a reaction towards death? Since this is the single most important aspect that we will all go through, I believe God takes note. And since he's not held by time or even dimension, there exists an eternal world where he dwells, since he is eternal. Furthermore, I believe that he consoles those who are grieving, and this reality will ring true in light of what is written. If we can cry over a pet that sometimes can easily be replaced, then how much more a God who created all creatures? His grieving has to be different than ours for many obvious reasons, but God does feel loss, as that is exactly what you would expect given the reality of a free will. Maybe it even hurts him more, not only because he created that being, but also because he knows, understands, and allows for all death. As the truest of judges, a death penalty is not lightly handled, but is considered with all its complexities and then rendered. God knows the eternal destination of all of his creation and thus able to also see uniquely the repercussions of all actions. If you eat of its fruit, you will surely die. That was the only single warning given, and when discarded, death entered into Adam and Eve as well as to all creation. Again, scientifically, we are we're aware that energy never ceases to exist, but rather transforms into different entities. In light of that understanding, all creation may die in the conventional sense of not existing in their original state and therefore transforming into different states of being. I could conclude that since God is eternal, then everything he made is also eternal. God is spirit and therefore exists in the spiritual realm with other spiritual beings. And if he so wishes, he could transform all of us into also spiritual beings with spiritual bodies that could exist in that spiritual realm for all eternity. Since it is God who also is the creator of all created, he also has the ability to change the laws of nature or even do away with them altogether. He is all-powerful and nothing is beyond his control. I may be getting into a very deep topic, the topic of humans existing eternally, but I believe that is precisely where this story, the story of all creation, may seem to be heading. In the beginning, we see created beings, Adam and Eve, with the ability to live forever. Otherwise, God would have never brought up death in the first place. The dire consequences of their disobedience was simply that they would become spiritually disconnected with God immediately, but also death would physically enter the world stage. From credit or grave, we may wonder, what is the point of it all? And that's a legitimate query. Our entire lives are surrounded by choices and repercussions of those choices, and especially and essentially that's the definition of our lives. Animals have instincts as well as built-in pre-programmed tendencies that govern their entire lives till death.
vegetation also have pre pre purposed programs that governed the necessary conditions they need in order to grow, flourish, and reproduce. Plants and animals alike, the main supporters of our existence, have been preordained to do their jobs and do them very well. Human beings, on the other hand, are different and special. Now, not special in that they inherently uh, got like superpowers and abilities that plants and animals do not possess. Absolutely not. As a matter of fact, there are many examples in the animal world that show just how primitive some of our senses are. For example, there are animals with much better eyesight and can see well beyond our capabilities. There are animals with highly developed senses of taste well beyond anything we can comprehend. Animals that can hear, smell, feel, etc., etc., exponentially better than human beings. Even in our abilities to run fast or swim harder, breathe underwater, thrive in inhospitable climate, all these and many, many more examples in the animal world show us by example that our special designation is not due to any of our abilities, but rather our identity in our maker. Some scientists may attempt to convince you that what really happened is that we evolved from lower, or what we would choose to define as lower, forms of life, but really the reason of that kind of thinking may be more cynical and evil than we're willing to admit. If we decided that we evolved from lower forms of life, then we could argue that we're still evolving, meaning that some of us would be more evolved than others. The ones who then decide that they're more evolved would become proud and entitled, leading to exploitation. Indeed, the entire transatlantic slave trade was only justified through twisted biblical interpretations, but also through pseudosciences that exist to this very day, and these are facts you must search out for yourself. God created Adam and Eve along with all creation without any blemish. Love, which is God's nature, demanded that he give them the ability to make their own choices based on the fact that God is also all-wise. His eternal existence qualities that he knew all that would happen before a single event had transpired and indeed the master plan was already in motion. As we continue reading the world's best-selling collection of books in the Bible since the WordPress, let's now make the messages contained in them personal. This journey we're on, as I have often stated, is the most important journey of our lives hands down. By Adam and Eve's disobedience, they drew first blood. From then onwards, creation has been and will continue to be riddled with death and decay. That is, until God chooses to do away with them. This is not a message for only those who profess to be Christians, or to those who believe in the Bible, or even to those of other religions or with no religions at all. This message is for all humans created in the image of God. I have many questions regarding the biblical narratives, but the more I study it, the more understanding I receive, as I am open to Holy Spirit's leading. This is not to mean that all will make sense in this lifetime. I honestly do not think so. There is simply too much to be known. 
However, what is there for us to know, we will continue to seek out. Our own minds and other influencers may attempt to convince us to believe, to not believe what is written, pardon me, and it is up to us to resist it. And when we fall, we get back up again as the journey of finding out who God is along what it, with what it means to be a Christian is truly a one-of-a-kind journey. May God himself be our guide. I love you all, but God loves you infinitely more. Be blessed. See you next time.